Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ever dance with the devil in the pale light? Podcast like it's 1989. Podcast like it. Just podcast like it. Podcast like it's 1989. Podcast like it. Just podcast like it. Podcast like it's 1989. Baby fish mouth. Baby fish mouth. Hello and welcome to Podcast Like It's 1989, the podcast where we talk about the films of 1989, Dancing with the Devil in the Pale Moonlight here in 2022. I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Nybar. And I'm Phyllis Gove. And with us back again is uh, the, the best podcaster in the biz. <laughs> I think I called her that last time. Uh, I think I called her the best pie, and she's like, "No." Nah. I'm like, "Yeah." <laughs> like, oh, this is like this is this is, this is objective. Karina Longworth, um, really dubious achievements, but thank you. Yeah, yeah, well, yes, yes. <laughs> I mean, yes. Yeah, well, we we are also trying in the podcast game, and we're not the best of all time. Sadly, no, we're certainly, so, we're certainly uh, not. Yes, but I'm super so super much. excited. To talk to you about this movie, Karina. I, I was I, I I reached out to you a, a you know a few weeks ago, and I was just like, "Who's the person I want to hear talk about Batman the most?" And truly, just just because it's it's sort of outside your lane in terms of what you do on your podcast, um, and I'm just super curious. Like, do you, did you see this film when you were obviously when you were a kid, like around '89? Did you see it in the theater? Do you remember Bobby- that? Yeah, I saw it in 1989 at the Cineplex Odeon at City Walk, and then I have never seen it since until last oh. week. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> now I'm even more excited. <laughs> are you, I mean, I guess the big question here is, what are your thoughts on comic book movies? Like, is this something you watch? Is it a genre that you have any interest in? Not anymore, no. Um, and, you know, back in 1989, I went to see this movie because of peer pressure, um, because oh, it wow. was 
definitely like the thing you had to do as a human being. It was a requirement, but certainly it was a requirement in elementary school to have seen Batman. Um, And, you know, I, for me, for a long time, it was kind of a case by case basis as to whether or not I would be interested in a comic book or superhero movie based on the cast or who was making it or, you know, whatever, any calculus you make about any other movie, because I was not a comic book reader. And so I didn't have sort of preconceived interest or or pre-existing interest. And then the Marvel movies just really broke me. Um, And so I I haven't gone to see any of them or gone seen any of them since Iron Man 3. Yeah. Totally fair. Gotta see a Shane Black movie. I understand that. (laughs) <laughs> but <laughs> until he makes another one, yes, stay out of the, stay out of the cineplex. So, uh, I, yeah, I, I, I felt the same way Phil did. I thought you were uh, a really perfect guest because what I think is most, you know, kind of important, what you could bring to this um, that we don't get uh, from a lot of people is um, the context and what, where, how you see this film land in the trajectory of films from literally, literally the beginning of time, because this does have some, <laughs> this, this does have some spiritual well, films from the beginning of time and then storytelling for the beginning of time. This is American mythology, right? So you know, you have that, that on one hand, you have sharing a lot of DNA with, you know, the James whale Frankenstein movies and things like that. Going back to the beginning of cinema, you have, um, you know, to me, Tim Burton, basically, you know, building a German expressionist city, um, that reminds me of, you know, um, Fritz Lang. Yeah. Fritz Lang. Exactly. And uh, that that's interesting, too. And I wonder how how you view that, you know, as a more honestly, more as a piece of film than as a, you know, a, a comic book movie or a blockbuster or a studio yeah. film or anything like that. Yeah. I mean, I really enjoyed watching it, you know, last week um, and I. I probably enjoyed it more because I didn't have really strong memories of the first time I saw it 40 years ago. Um, I guess it wasn't quite 40, but pretty close. Um, And um, yeah, I mean, all this stuff you're saying in terms of his references to German expressionism are really fascinating. For me, I, if I can place it within a trajectory that you didn't mention, it's just uh, Jack Nicholson's career, um, Mm, which is, Um, you like know, pre-Joker I, and post-Joker. It's sort of that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I don't know if it's like a coincidence that you emailed me on the day that you did about this, but the day that you emailed me, I was posting on Twitter about, um, you know, these magazines that I buy on eBay, which is how I actually do a lot of my research now because archives are still closed. And so I posted about this uh, issue of GQ from, I think, 1981 that had Jack Nicholson on the cover, like, in a mustache, like, too much of a tan. And it's, like, <laughs> yeah. it's definitely, Objective. like, that is sort of a, this in-between period between, you know, sort of Chinatown, Jack Nicholson, and Batman, where I'm, like, I was specifically interested in him in um, Bob Rafferty's <laughs> remake of The Postman Always Rings Twice, which is something sure. that I'm researching right now. Um, but, yeah, definitely, I think that Batman is kind of this new avenue of his career. And unfortunately, I'm I'm not that interested in the stuff he did after, but I think that the performance in Batman is just kind of an all-timer. It's it's also I'm also curious about kind of I mean ultimately what it did to cinema, right? I mean, there it does feel like 
I mean, this this movie was so colossally successful. It really began the potential of comic book movies being, you know, made in a certain way. But I also, I, I couldn't help but feel this way as I was watching it the other day. This movie almost feels like an A24 movie in comparison to the comic book movies that we have today. I mean, this was a $35 million budget. It's, it's basically all sets or miniatures. Uh, it's matte backgrounds, map painting backgrounds. Like it's it's a beautiful, tactile, old school movie. I mean, you could say the same about Batman Returns as well, which comes out a few years later, but still like, it, you don't see this anywhere anymore. <laughs> like this is not even, it doesn't even feel like a comic book movie anymore in a weird way. Yeah, and I mean, I think that that's great. Um, <laughs> you, I mean, to me, the thing that's the least interesting about Batman is Batman. Um, sure. yeah, like his, sure. you know, and also the movie seems to think so as well. The yeah. movie's not that interested in bat mythology or or even any gadgets or anything beyond the Batmobile. And in that sense, it's only interested in it practically. It's only interested in it as a function of the story. Um, so it works great for me because I feel like one of the problems with um, Marvel movies and, and a lot of contemporary cinema is that they just get so bogged down in, in fan service and, mm-hmm. and in questions of, like, should we be appealing to the people who know more about this mythology than the filmmakers could ever know, or should we be trying to, um, you know, defy their expectations? That's a real damned if you don't situation, you know? A hundred percent. It's, it's, you know, it's so interesting how, this isn't really an origin story, right? Like we have a flashback, which I would argue is is the best execution. This is not, this of, is not an origin. Story. It's not an origin story at all, really. No. It, it's kind of it, it's it's backfilled about an hour hour twenty into the film as to sort of how these two men's you know lives crossed and how the Joker was the person who killed his parents and all that, you know. But ultimately the screenwriters aren't interested in doing an origin story and you couldn't get away with that I think you know, that's, years later. I think it's incredibly interesting, Phil. I, so, and as I texted you as I was watching, I've seen this movie a dozen times. Sure. Um, but, and I saw it in the theater when it came out. It was one of the first big movies I ever saw in the theater. Um, not because Same. I was a Batman fan, probably more because of kind of what you were saying, Corinne. I remember distinctly being at camp and having kids walking around playing the Prince um soundtrack. the prince soundtrack on little like you know casio recorders like the one jer- joker henchman holding it around he, hold, he, he cool. carries the boombox even when he's not playing music i love that guy <laughs> yeah. but uh but so so we i remember going to see to see that film in you know in 89 and 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 loving it and being kind of blown away by how much i loved it in the moment but what i said to phil last night is i watched with my son for the first time i've never he's not i've never let oh, him well. I never let him watch a Batman movie um, because, you know, the Nolan ones, I think, are inappropriate. And uh, I think this one was is pretty inappropriate up to a point. Um, yeah, I always remember, dark. you know, Nicholson just shooting, shooting the, the shooting holes into, into <laughs> Jack Palance and thinking that yes. might be something we should hold off on. So <laughs> long, long story short. Yeah. I didn't remember how this movie started. And this movie starts with something akin to the Batman origin story, but it's a misdirect. And that was incredibly interesting to me that it assumed a certain level of Batman mythology understanding on part of an audience that hasn't had a real Batman property in 20 years. You know, a filmed Batman property in 20 years and comics were at their nadir at this point. So I thought that was really interesting. Now, it plays really well in 2022. 
where my son does have a basic understanding of how Batman started and was totally caught off guard by what was going on and had to catch up. I loved that. I loved watching his kind of wheels turn. But yeah, I, I, I think there were so many moments in this movie that didn't play like fan service that just played like uh, uh, respecting the audience in a way well, I never would have expected. I was just going to say it's 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 a it's respectful in the sense that the that they just believe the audience isn't an idiot. I mean, I I, I remember you know I'm sure we all remember sort of the the various kind of false starts in the whole Spider Man franchise for many years as they were trying to get that off the ground and Sony being just adamant that it had to be an origin story and many filmmakers just passing on the project because they just weren't interested in in doing that. I just think it's fascinating that this film in '89 before any of this stuff happens has so much more courage of its convictions and faith in the audience. It's pretty incredible. I also want to speak, and I'm curious, Karina, obviously, as to your feelings on sort of the tone of this film. And and to get to that, I kind of I'm curious as to what your feelings are about Tim Burton as a filmmaker in terms of, I mean, it's he's made a lot of movies, some good, some bad. Um, but I'm curious as to sort of your feelings about him and the tone that he captures with this film. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, my feelings about Tim Burton are that I've it's another situation where I've kind of been off the bus for a while. Sure, that sure. was definitely a bus I was on um, in the nineties, like fr- basically from Batman returns through maybe Mars attacks or sleepy mm-hmm. hollow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think he lost me with planet of the apes, but I think you lost a lot um, of people. With planet and of the apes. Then, uh, yeah. I, you know, I really tried with, uh, I love that movie with uh, what is it? The, uh, the Sweeney Todd. Sweeney Todd. Yeah. I yeah. tried. Um, you know, and I actually interviewed him for Alice in Wonderland, which I think is a oh. piece of garbage. And it <laughs> was like, it, it was one of, of these things where it was like, they show you the movie on like a Friday night and yeah. it, it, screening ends at like 11 p.m. and you have to be at the junket at 8 a.m. on Saturday. Oh. Wait until it's your turn. And so by the time they got around to me, it was like 2.30 in the afternoon. And they're like, now you can't have half an hour. You can only have 10 minutes. And oh. so I was alone with him in a hotel room um, for 10 minutes and it was really strange and like I don't know what he does to sustain himself through a long day of press but it didn't feel like a natural high that he was on and interesting um, and so I that's my breaking news <laughs> personal experience so <laughs> um, yeah so that I I have not really paid attention to his career since then um but, but when you were I mean, in the pocket, yeah, when I was in the pocket. Well, <laughs> I, 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 I'm thinking about your moment in that, hotel. I assume, some hotel suite that they rented for him. Uh-huh. And you have 10 minutes, so you have to cut your list down by two thirds. And I, I mean, the first I question I would, my question One would be question. Like, are, are you okay? <laughs> I'm fine. Yeah, it wasn't traumatic. It was just like. No, no, no. I, my question for Tim was, would be, are you okay? Oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, Is yeah. everything I okay, mean, Tim? I, I always had like a little banter going into those situations because I'm like, I don't even think I'm a natural interviewer. And so it's, and it's always awkward anyway. And so I would always be like, bet you're doing a lot of these today or like something a name sure. like that. But I didn't even have time to ask that. So <laughs> I just sort of, I said something about how I think he was perceived as, you know, sort of a goth filmmaker. And so it'd be interesting that he would do Alice in Wonderland. And he didn't let me finish the sentence. And, um, oh, wow. So uh, cool. just went off on, you know, t- told me what he wanted me to hear. 
Yeah, I mean, listen, I think I think you'd be hard pressed to find a lot of people that are still big Tim Burton fans. Um, right. I, I I liked Dumbo <laughs> fine, um, but people who when, are people who are excited about the new Tim Burton release is what you're saying. Sure, it's been because a while since he's Tim made Burton anything, fans, but you know, sure. from the 80s and 90s. Yes. Right. Yes. Yeah, and so I mean, I think Ed Wood is a masterpiece. Yes, I love right, Edward yeah. Scissorhands. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I mean, those would be like kind of the two big ones for me. I enjoyed Mars Attacks as well when I saw it in the theater, mm-hmm. but it's not something I re- revisited. Same with Sleepy Hollow. I think it's interesting that like this film, obviously, you know, uh, lets him do whatever he wants, right? From this point on, he basically can kind of do whatever he wants. Um, and he essentially gets to kind of make the movies that he wants to make. I'm sure he it might be a little tougher in the current IP-obsessed world that we're in, but still... Um, and yet he doesn't really love this movie. <laughs> like when, he, when, he, when, you're, when he's asked about it, it's grown on him. But I think that the process, and we'll get into sort of the way they made this film, which for all intents and purposes feels pretty insane, all things considered. And that it turned into a great movie is kind of a miracle in its own way. But he just, I think the process sucked. I think he had so much studio interference. I mean, he had just come off of Beetlejuice, which was this weirdo little movie where he was kind of let to do whatever he wants. Um, and then all of a sudden he was in a box thinking about McDonald's Happy Meals and trailers and shit that I'm sure he just didn't care about. But it doesn't, you don't see it on the screen. So I guess that's something. Yeah, I mean, I the the whole vibe of the movie is almost as punk rock as a movie that is a yes. commercial behemoth could be. Yes. Um, and, you know, it's, I mean, that's a magic trick. Like, mm-hmm. you know, because you, you know the movie is not avant-garde. <laughs> but it's giving you it's giving you avant-garde. Yeah. Do you think yeah. that's Nicholson? You were talking about Nicholson, but like Nicholson signing on to this thing really makes it stratospheric, right? I mean, that that is at that moment, it feels like he gives the I, I'm I'm sort of curious history-wise, right? He's at his most powerful, would you say, at that point in his career? Um, I don't know because the the eighties weren't exactly a great decade right. for him, you know? Um he made some really interesting movies, but commercially, I think this gave him kind of a new boost yeah. power. Um, so in, in a weird sense, it was kind of a comeback for him in terms of being like at the center of the culture again. Sure. Um, you know, I think the stuff with, with Nicholson is the best stuff in the movie, but it's not, it doesn't all have to do with him. I mean, mm-hmm. the design and the conception of this, like one of your the products you use to make you more beautiful or attractive or cleaner is going to destroy you and you don't brilliant. know which one. I mean, that is su- that is such an, an insidious, brilliant idea about capitalism and consumerism. Plus, and, coming from that particular character, it really just plays so well. Yeah. And just the imagery that they, you know, dramatize that idea with is incredible. And it's impossible... I can't imagine a movie going that far today that is intending to reach children as well as adults. Yeah, it's well, awesome. It's <laughs> awesome. And like, I'm not, and, and, and I'm not, I'm not someone who tries to traumatize children or someone who's excited about traumatizing children, but it's, it's amazing. I, cause I was seven when I saw this movie, I, I don't think I felt particularly traumatized when I saw, but I actually think the images in this movie, um, particularly the ones that always stuck with me were the the cutouts of the models with the mouths. You know, the love that Joker stuff. That was that stuff always stuck with me. That is more nightmare fuel than anything in the Dark Knight. 
yep. by a by a, a pretty large margin, I think. Um, so, and I think that's very it's 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 tactile, and it really, really, truly feels like a threat to all of us in a way that I don't think any superhero movie has um, has oh, nailed. No. You know, I think they tried this a little bit with Batman Forever. Um, the idea that the Riddler was, yeah. you know, tapping into television. all of us yeah. through our television, and mm-hmm. it could be any of us watching, and he would essentially steal our brainwaves. But uh, that movie's not on this level for for many reasons, and that <laughs> villain plot is not quite the same. But this is a perfect well, like plot for the villain. I was thinking about the scene in the museum. Love it when he when the Joker sits Vicky Vale down and says, "I want to be the first homicidal artist." Um, and his whole plan there is terrifying when you think about it. I mean, the, the mutilation that he, you know, essentially wants to, it seems like he just wants to mutilate women, which is its own <laughs> thing. Um, but it, it, it's just this very sort of, um, a weird sort of perversion of art and aesthetics. And it's, it is quite creepy. It's quite upsetting. Um, there's a lot of stuff in this movie this time around that I found. I don't know why, but the Joker, when he's dressed up like the mime, uh, <laughs> really kind of freaked me out. I don't know why, but like his little red lips and like that it's and the top hat. And there's just stuff that's very, you said it kind of perfectly, very punk rock, but also very kind of unsettling. Very punk rock. I think for yeah. me that like the thing that felt unsettling, com- like comparative to the mime is when, He's like taking off his regular person makeup and the white makeup is underneath. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. It's it's so brilliant. It's like when she throws the water in his face and he's like, I'm melting, I'm melting. It's just it's great. The quote unquote regular person makeup is something I didn't get for years and years and years. But, you know, now watching just how uh, artificial that makeup looks, looks on his face is it's so subtle, but it's so good and clever. Um, I, I do want to not, I do want to go back to Nicholson for a second. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think that Nicholson needed this movie more than the movie needed him even. Um, if you look at his 80s, and I think Karina was uh, saying this more or less, like he won an Academy Award early in the 80s for a supporting role. Um, not that he was a supporting actor, but he was certainly someone who was willing to take a back seat. Mm-hmm. He was in a few movies that are, you know, that, that you know, uh, Ironweed and Heartburn and uh, Witches of Eastwick, like movies that have persevered to some extent, but really haven't, you know, really aren't the movie you think of when you think of Jack Nicholson. Um, this performance, you know, kind of supercharged him for the rest of his career. And I would say is, I would say the, the peak of his power, mm. the 70s, of course, but that resurgence in the 90s with As Good As It Gets and, and all the movies that came off of that, he was in his mid-60s, one of the three or four biggest stars in the world. For sure. Absolutely, yeah. I, I also just think it's interesting to sort of, to look at kind of... <laughs> the icon that he was at that time. I mean, the demands that he made to make this film are insane and and pretty much unheard of Um, in terms of, I mean, monetarily speaking, he, he had enough back end to essentially make a hundred million dollars off of this film um, because of merchandising and money. Great. I mean, you would never be able to get it today, but he was able to get it then. But even just like he had an off the clock agreement, his contract basically specified the number of hours he was going to work each day. He would show up at work at like 10 a.m. and just 
on a bender, basically, having had going to parties. He also I in think his that's contract the last thirty years. <laughs> he also said in his contract uh, he he had to be off whenever the Lakers had home games. <laughs> I mean, it's just it's incredible. I mean, you just obviously these are things you could never ask for today. But I I kind of feel like. I mean, there were a lot of people up for this role. It's worth talking about just for a quick second. The people that were tossed around at the time that auditioned, Tim Curry, David Bowie, John Lithgow, Ray Liotta, James Woods. Uh, apparently, Robin Williams was offered James the Woods role. James Woods would have been terrifying. Terrifying. <laughs> terrifying. For a myriad of reasons. But, you know, Robin Williams is offered the role. He's used as a stalking horse to get Nicholson in. And then Robin Williams was pissed off with Warner Brothers for years for having manipulated the situation. But, like... None of them are going to be well, as good as Nicholson. Can you imagine what? I think a lot of them would have been really great. I think you just named a lot of people that I would have loved to. Like, I'm not saying it would have been bad. It's just different. Like, Tim Curry doesn't, you know, get people excited the way Jack Nicholson does, but you no. know he would just murder it. <laughs> uh, but yeah. could you imagine Robin Williams? How, yeah. like, because how yeah. that would have changed his career? Sure. So would have changed the movie too, though, because like Robin I, oh, Williams. Oh, I think it would have been much is, worse, of course. For but, sure. I mean, Robin Williams he plays villain pretty well. Sense. He, but he plays villain pretty well. He, does, and he, he, he wouldn't does. do that for the. Ne- he wouldn't do that for another for ten years, years yeah. I think. So yeah. until it's, it's, like insomnia. Yeah, it's it's really interesting to think about. I mean. So have you, I don't know, Karina, if you ever heard who uh, Tim Burton wanted to play Beetlejuice in Beetlejuice, but he, he wanted Sammy Davis Jr. <laughs> <laughs> wow, and it's just, <laughs> which is insane. But it's also just like, that's where you see some of his casting choices for this film in terms of he didn't want stars in this movie. Michael Keaton was essentially a buddy off of uh, Beetlejuice and it sort of made sense. And, you know, Warner Brothers, you know, notoriously had like 30,000 letters mailed to them, people saying that they didn't want him to play the role and all sorts of craziness like that. But but I just feel like like Tim Burton, for all intents and purposes, does feel like some weird yeah. outlier that snuck in to Hollywood. The two, the two other times mm-hmm. I feel like fans revolted against casting choices uh-huh. were Keith Ledger, and Daniel Craig in Bath Bond. Yeah. Only like the two, like two of the, including, you know, yeah. Keaton, but like only like yeah. two of the, the, the literal best. best casting choices yeah. of all time. Yep. The yeah, fans are morons. They are. <laughs> it's, it's also, I, I just, in terms of the development of the film, just to sort of a little bit of context, I think it's interesting to talk about how, I guess, Spielberg thought about doing it for a heartbeat, apparently. Uh, he wanted Harrison Ford and Michael J. Fox and a whole litany of people. Uh, I'm glad we didn't get that film. I love Spielberg, but I, this it doesn't really make much sense. The Coen brothers were offered this movie. They turned it down. I don't know what a Coen brothers Batman looks like, but Cronenberg was offered it. Again, Like these are filmmakers that don't make any sense for this property, as much as I adore their work. It is just really interesting to see how they saw this as an auteur vehicle in 89. Like they, they really did. It's kind of fascinating. Yeah, I can't explain that. Neither can I. Yeah, why? Who, who thinks, so, so let's, let's play, let's play the, the revisionist history game. Yeah. Who's the obvious choice? Like who, like, you know, who's, and I, I don't mean to, yeah. I don't mean to talk all the dead. He did a great job. But who's the Richard Donner? Like, who's the... Well, that's that's the thing. I think that, I mean, so you have... I'm not pitching Richard Donner. I'm just saying, sure. like, but Superman, to me, yeah. fantastic studio film, more or less what I would have expected a Superman film to look like. Donner yeah. got the job done. 
who who would have been that person in 89 that you go to and and like well, a Ron Howard? They did first of all, they did go to Donner. I mean, because this was produced by Goober and Peters. These are two guys who were obviously two of the biggest producers on Warner Brothers lot. It it made sense. They wanted to build this film in the mold of Superman. They wanted John Williams to do the score. They wanted I mean, I really do think that they thought that that was the way to go. Someone, I don't know who, must have been like, have you read the comics? <laughs> like, <laughs> It's super dark and it's about a vigilante and it's about an orphan. And it's like, it's just, it's Superman is the all-American and it makes total sense to do what they did with Superman. But these are very different pieces of IP. So when that pivot happens, you got to look down that list and be like, they went to Joe Dante, which makes sense. Like they went to these people yeah. that were sort of existing in a world where... They were somehow making but accessible dark movies. The the other thing that's kind of amazing, you know, is the the predominant uh, iconography behind Batman at the time, at least in you know public sphere, was sure. the '60s television show, which yes. was very campy and over mm-hmm. the top and very funny. It was essentially a comedy, and relied on you know uh, cameos and, and puns and all that stuff. And Batman, you know, I would. That's what all you know the executives probably grew up. With including Burton, actually, um, I would have expected executives to default to that kind of Batman. For sure. And what I think happened was, you quote, unquote, did you read the comics? I'm pretty sure the, the, the did you read the graphic novels is the real yes. question, yeah. right? Yeah. Did you read the, the Frank, Frank Miller, Miller stuff? stuff? Yeah. Did you read the Killing Joke? Did you read, you know, year one? Did you read the Dark Knight Rises? Did, like these things are, the, I, I believe those are the things that, that, that did eventually convince the studio uh, this might work. Yeah. I, so, I, I, Karina, I'm curious, and this is kind of a, a slightly 30,000 feet perspective, but I'm curious, I, I feel like I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the Jokerified world that we live in right now a little bit and how, you know, we've seen so many versions of this character um, that have, and I guess my question is more, why do you think this character has its hooks in America in the way that it does? Because it is, as we've said, a super dark nihilistic, twisted thing that we've now had how many versions of? Six? Five or six, I think, at this point? I'm not sure how many, but we've had... Yeah, we've had seven uh, live actions. We had Batman versus Superman. We had Justice League, so those are two more. And we've had... we were actually eight, including the Adam West. So that's that's ten total, and then and Batman, then animated ones, sure. Mask of the Phantasm. Yeah. So those so, are the eleven that have actually come out in theaters. Do you have thoughts, Karina, as to why the Joker, why America loves the Joker? I mean, oh, I I'm sorry. Wait, oh, oh, Batman. I th- oh, I'm sorry. I was, I was speaking of the Joker, Batman. but we, it doesn't matter. We, Five yeah, different yeah. Jokers, so six, Five including Caesar Romero. You know, I mean, I haven't seen most of those movies, but so right. it's hard for me to to say like what America is responding to. Um, you know, I got the sense, like, I didn't see the Joaquin Phoenix joke. Oh, you did? Okay. I got, I got the sense when that movie was out that people were responding to it in this sort of, like, red state America way. Um, but, I mean, not necessarily, like, everybody who went to see that movie and liked it was a Trump voter, but that it just right. it kind of appealed to um, something that's going on in the world about masculinity and it mm-hmm. sort of not, it's discontents, you know, <laughs> for lack of a better for sure. term. Um, but... I mean, for me, I think what I have a better insight into is just that actors love it. Um, and they love it for a number of reasons. Um, you know, it's 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 a chameleonic part. It, it lets them sort of explore both darkness and hope in a way. Um, 
so that that makes more sense to me than why people want to buy it. Yeah, I you know, Kenny and I we did a whole episode on the Joker trailer. <laughs> um, so we 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 certainly were uh curious about it. And and I do think that I absolutely agree with you on an acting perspective. Um I think that I mean there notoriously Nicholson spoke to Heath Ledger before he started the role and was like, "Listen, this can this thing can be kind of intoxicating and it can kind of get in your blood a little bit." And obviously we 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 know how that transpired for for Heath, but I I do think that it's it's dangerous in a way that feels playful. Um, you know, it has this kind of this obviously this this nihilism that exists underneath it all. Um, but it's it, it fascinates me. I I'm, I'm just it, 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 of all the roles, it's interesting that this is the one that yeah. people seem to love so much. I it's interesting to me because you watch um, Batman, the movie we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And I was talking to my son about it this morning and because he's a nerd. And he's not a nerd. He's a wonderful guy. But he <laughs> loves talking about this show. And, um, <laughs> and we were talking about how uh, this is more of a Joker movie than a Batman movie. Right? The For origin sure. story you get is the Joker's origin yeah. story. And the and the and the uh the emotional arc you have is Joker's emotional arc, and you're with Joker for every decision he makes. Yeah. And there's very little development when it comes to Bruce Wayne and Batman, but there's a lot of development when it comes to the Joker. And this kind of is the this less so than the Joaquin Phoenix movie, but you know, I think they kind of play in the same area. This is kind of the exception to the rule of my, you know, my 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 on the present argument that you can't make movies about villains. Um, be, which is like, I, I do think there is this desire in, among actors to play wonderful, rich, funny, scary villains. Mm-hmm. And I have always thought a lot of that is because the stakes are so low. The stakes are so low because you don't have to have anybody buy in. You don't have to have anybody be on your side. There is no empathy that you are trying to pull from the audience. So sure. it's like, the, the heart, as I've always said, the hardest thing to do as an actor is off the table for you. Go have fun. But to put that character at the center of your movie and ask the audience to follow this person throughout, and at least like with the Joker in particular and Jack, like you are supposed to feel him. You are supposed mm-hmm. to feel him be wounded by uh, Jack Palance in the beginning. And you are supposed to feel him feel, you know, uh, outdone by the Batman at, at all these turns. And mm-hmm. it's, it is a bit of a uh, unusual position for the audience to be in. And I think that's probably really exciting for an actor to, to toy with an audience in a way that you almost never can. Um, for and sure. More, and frankly, never should because it's, it's, so, it's such a high wire act. Well, there's such a theatricality to, to it that I think it must be a lot of fun. But, but this also speaks a little bit to sort of, and, and Karina, you can speak, to this probably far better than I can, but like this movie has a timeless component to it. It feels like it doesn't exist in a specific time. You have sort of these detectives and these newspaper uh, people that almost exist in the thirties. And then you've got like this femme fatale almost in Vicky Vale, but also sort of a damsel in distress, but also this reporter, like there's just kind of a lot going on there. There's it like feels film like a noir-ish. very 80s woman to me, like a very yeah. 80s oh, yes. Yes. woman, like, you know, that like this very complicated 80s, like sort mm-hmm. of post-feminist, but like we're not actually going to call it feminist depiction mm-hmm. of a career woman. Um, yes. So, yeah. But I mean, yeah, I would agree with you that it's it's this hybrid of like a 1930s newspaper movie, 
um, German expressionist production okay. design, um, 80s sort of um, pop music and like early rap influence as well, um, sort of 80s street culture. Um, you know, I mean, like it, the, all the art stuff and like just Joker with like with his sort of like posse. I mean, it feels like they could be, you know, going to like limelight. They could be hanging out with Keith Haring. Um, that's, that's one of the things that's so cool about it is that, or is so fun to watch about it is that it, it, so right. it does feel like it's coming out of like a real sort of subcultural place. Um, but it's at the highest, highest level of pop mass culture at the same time. Um, yeah, it's when when you list all those things again, it just kind of amazes me that this movie worked for anybody. Like it, it's just it's amazing to me that it, that, that it works hits for everybody. Yeah, That's right. well, yeah, That's sure. I mean, do you think that audiences were just like more excited about going with the flow mm-hmm. at that time? Like, were mm-hmm. they more culturally savvy? I mean, we this is this is the last episode of our of our eighty nine Patreon, and we've done I think we've done about fifty some odd films, I think give or take. Um, you know, the, the the biggest, certainly the the you know the the most beloved, um, and it's a very interesting year in terms of you know what hit, why it hit, um, even the Academy Awards, which, which we've obviously talked about a fair amount as well. But like, that's another thing. I kind of can't believe Jack Nicholson didn't get an Oscar nomination for this. Like, despite the fact that I know it's a comic book movie, but like, it's still Jack Nicholson. No it's still like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, what like, to do with this movie? But didn't like Pacino get nominated for Dick Tracy? Like, yes, the next year. Yeah. That was yeah. the next year. Yeah. <laughs> so it's uh, like they, uh, yeah. But I mean, this movie, you know, ran so Dick Tracy could run. It's a wall. mile per hour. Yeah, no, I love <laughs> I love Dick Tracy. Like I, I, I do too. Dick Tracy's, but, uh, Dick Tracy's fun, but Dick Tracy's not this. No. So we've done right fifty movies, uh, <laughs> and this isn't the best or my favorite, but this is the boldest movie. It is. I would say bolder than the second boldest, which is Sex Lies and Videotape. Um, <laughs> this is the this is the most avant garde. Yeah. This is the biggest swing. I can't. I mean, the the other movie that made a ton of money this year on this mm-hmm. level was Indiana Jones Three, mm-hmm. um, which is like a movie I love and is so down the middle. Oh, it's yeah. like it's, it's so down the middle compared yeah. to this, and kind of you know, uh, it wrought nothing. For you sure. know what I mean? Whereas this birthed the next thirty five years of Hollywood. For sure. I mean, just look at the weekend. So this movie comes out uh, June 23rd, 1989. It opens against Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, Ghostbusters 2, Last Crusade, Dead Poets Society. All of those movies made a boatload of money. I mean, this is the, you know, right in the middle of the summer. But still, this is the, we're still not, this is, I would argue, the, the, this is maybe the blockbuster year, right? This is the year where, the studios look at it and say, okay, so week franchises are possible, $100 million, you know, opening weekends, all that kind of stuff that seems possible. And and yet, I mean, Dead Poets Society made just an insane amount of money for a movie about like a bunch of boys at a prep school. And, you know, it, it's it, it's just a different, I mean, obviously it's a different time, but to your, to your question, Karina, in terms of whether or not tastes if we had better taste back then, or is it just that we were given better options is kind of hard for me to 
say. It's not even better taste. Like, I just kind of wonder if the audience was, there was an assumption. I mean, you said it earlier that they, it, the movie doesn't treat the audience like idiots in the way that yeah. some of these movies does do today. Mm-hmm. I also wonder if the, there was an assumption that the audience like knew a little bit about music, knew a little bit about art, knew a little bit about film history, knew a little bit about history history. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't so crazy to put all these things in the same movie. You, you don't even, I mean, like, there there may have been and there probably was, but I wouldn't even, like, if I were making the film, I wouldn't even take that into account. I would just trust that the audience can catch up. Because sure. I know my nine-year-old knows nothing about this stuff, but I know he was able to catch up and there was something about the stew that felt right to him. So I think, you know, I, Karina, as you know, we do 99 normally. And not that they're similar in any way, but The Matrix reminds me of this. In that it is a high-minded idea, you know, this is original, you know, Batman isn't, but a high-minded idea done differently doesn't look like any other blockbusters or movies made for that amount of money and just became a phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and it, then, doesn't, it doesn't care if you get it or not. No. And it trusts that if you that 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 if you're curious, you will do the research after and you will fill in the, the blanks on your own. But it takes you far enough that the whole thing works, even if you're not willing to do that. And I would, I mean, pose it to both of you. What was the last, like, and I'm sure there are dozens of answers, but what yeah. was the last big blockbuster that that felt this, you know, shot out of a cannon? Because I, I can't, to me, like the Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter, like those are so built in. Those just yeah. as as visually amazing as Lord of the Rings are, and you know, the scope and the storytelling that that just doesn't feel like what we're talking about. Like, well, because it, it feels like what we're talking about here is, and the reason The Matrix is so good and the reason that this is so good is um, just so many different genres that have been put into a blender. I mean, with The Matrix, you know, kung fu to cyberpunk to all these different things that they're kind of just putting in a stew and saying like, isn't this cool? And I don't think... I mean, I can't think of filmmakers that are interested in doing that right now. I mean, it, I, I, I mean, I guess or, or, or able or allowed, you know, like that's just, yeah. I mean, I do think Tarantino is doing it, but it's kind of more. I don't know. It hasn't <laughs> felt this exciting in a long time. Like I oh, like yeah. a lot of Tarantino's movies, but I really don't think since you know maybe Kill Bill has mm-hmm. something yeah. else exciting. And no, I, I agree. God love, God love Tarantino, but part of the thing is. We know him at this point. Like part of the thing is, is I I go into Once Upon a Time in Hollywood expected expecting mm-hmm. to kind of be blown away to some extent, mm-hmm. and uh, and I kind of know his tricks by this. Well, point. wouldn't you wouldn't you also say that you know, Karina, you were kind of listing all the stuff that exists in this film, and those are things that are plausibly people would know about. Whereas Tarantino stuff is so obscure. You know, I mean, he he loves himself so much and his knowledge of film so much that you know it's a litany of such obscurity and it's cool to watch but like batman feels far more pop culture right but it's like i mean he's referencing obscure movies but in a context that everybody of stuff everybody yes. knows about you know yes. like everybody knows about slavery world war ii and the sure. Man- <laughs> sure um sure but you know, I mean, one one person, one filmmaker who is, you know, probably my favorite working filmmaker is Paul Thomas Anderson. And it doesn't look like Licorice Pizza is going to be a blockbuster. Um, you know, of course, I don't know, like, how we even judge success of movies right now. But um, that's a movie that really did surprise me in a lot of ways. And, you know, I guess I, I thought I knew quite a bit about it before I saw it. But in terms of, like, 
his willingness to make a completely episodic film, Mm -hmm. that feels like something that I haven't seen a filmmaker do. Yeah, I mean, I feel as though he has definitely, I mean, I don't think there's a filmmaker right now who's just like every film just feels like another leap forward in terms of what he's trying to do and a fearlessness that we're sort of speaking of that, you know, courage of your convictions. Um, You know, I I went to see Phantom Thread again recently in 70 millimeter at the Arrow and again was just absolutely blown away by that movie and what, what he's doing there and all the different influences and all the kind of that it's, I guess, kind of a dark comedy. I'm not really sure. The movie's doing a lot of stuff, but but to your point, it's a wrong cup. But to your point on on licorice pizza, which I do think is 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 a good example of, you know, kind of putting a bunch of things in a stew and 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 hoping that people will play along. Um, I don't know that there's that many filmmakers that are doing that. Were you you going to say something? I'll tell you, yeah. There's a guy who always kind of, you know, rides side saddle with uh, Paul Thomas Anderson for me. Mm And that's Darren Aronofsky, who yeah. at one point was going to do a Batman movie, I believe. Yeah, year um, one. Yeah, and that be. didn't work out. But he, to mm-hmm. me, yeah. takes that's even wilder idea. swings sure. I love and misses. I'm, I'm like yeah. the biggest mother. Mother's crazy. That's, that's kind of what I'm getting at, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. if Paul, like, there is, there is a case to be made that the Paul Thomas Anderson movies from... Uh, there will be blood more or less till now are wild swings that just don't feel like wild swings because they're so tight and competent and, and, and they work so well together. Whereas you see the seams in some of Aronofsky stuff, but also, you know, there, 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 there's nothing like mother and there's nothing like the fountain and there's nothing like, you know, uh, black Noah. swan or what's that? <laughs> Noah. There's nothing like Noah. He, he's like, <laughs> He's he is a the wild man. <laughs> Who is? <yeah, I> <laughs> he is a. Oh my goodness! He yeah. is a. He's a wild man who who yeah. I think does have the potential to like. Uh, is isn't he doing the movie with Brandon Brandon Fraser right now? The whale. The whale. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, don't I don't know anything about be. that movie, yeah. but I don't know anything about that movie except like something you know. Might, some might some crazy I, I, shit. Not to just uh, devolve this podcast into a litany of other filmmakers that do this stuff, but I just want to name one other one. <laughs> I do think that uh, Guillermo del Toro is another guy who feels like, I mean, I really liked Nightmare Alley quite a bit. It does feel like, I mean, that is a remake of a, of an adaptation. So like there's several pieces of IP and what have you, but that movie is playing with all sorts of, you know, sort of supernatural carny universe mixed with film noir, mixed with con artists. Like it's trying to do a lot of things. Some would argue maybe not as successfully as others, but he is a guy who I feel also has the courage of his convictions so, in the sense of taking wild swings. So to to kind of close loop on this point, yeah. we're talking about a bunch of filmmakers. Mm-hmm. They are all men and they are all basically <laughs> the exact same age. Um and they have all had uh art, yeah. they've all had art house success and a certain measure of popular success, but yeah. not a, not not a, not a ton, but mm-hmm. you know a, a, enough. Enough. Yeah. They mostly avoided doing superhero movies, though. Del Toro did a couple of Hellboys, mm-hmm. um, and or yeah, yeah, <laughs> Hellboys and two 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 um, Hellboys. Yeah, and, Hellboys. And, yeah, and I don't disagree that that 
the three guys we mentioned, and then you can put in your Ritu in that category as well. And there are a few other people who do get to kind of do what they want to do. Quaron also probably. Yeah, Quaron. You, you, you can put some people in that category. But for the most part, these are established people who Hollywood has decided you get 30 million when you want 30 million. Yeah. Um, what I really hope is that somebody, you don't need 30 million, but somebody could do this on their first film. You know, uh, yeah. and, yep. and, you know, really, it, it, it's very hard. It's, it's just very it's hard to, to do something this visually striking, this, uh, this, this tonally consistent, but out of the box and thematically, mm-hmm. you know, uh, unusual and, and, and dark and whatever. So I want to, I, I want to just take a sec to kind of, I mean, we're not going to talk about the, the, the plot necessarily because, you know, it's Batman. You've either seen it. <laughs> you've probably seen it if you're listening to this episode. Um, but I, I, I did text Kenny something that I, it, Kenny and I were texting about how it takes about 30 minutes for Bruce Wayne to show up in this movie. Um, you know, the opening of this film um, is really bold in the sense of kind of you've got that the, the family mirroring Bruce's parents, uh, you know, and, and I remember as a kid. Shocking as a nine-year-old thinking, oh, well, that must be Bruce's parents. Like, I remember sitting in the theater and being like, oh, it must be his parents. And then obviously it's it's a psycho to some degree or another. But like, Batman's entrance is so fucking awesome. And yet it's like walking a razor's edge of being laughable. Like, there's a version of this film that tips and none of this works. And I just, it's it's kind of a real high wire act of, I mean, he literally says, I'm Batman. <laughs> And it it's awesome, okay. but it's also pretty this ridiculous. Is 89. This is 89. This is the first one through the gate. You could do that. Sure. But I also love that that was an improv by Michael Keaton. He was actually, <laughs> the line was actually supposed to be, uh, I am the knight. And, oh. and Keaton was like, no. <laughs> so, I mean, again, these are things where you're just like, it shouldn't work. But those two robbers are great. The two guys on the on the roof doing the American Express thing, and the, and and just it, it's it immediately it's just so confident. You just you know you're in in good hands. Is kind of what I'm saying. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. I'll go. You know, yeah, my, uh, the only thing that I kind of think is funny is the uh, the hand to hand combat in this movie. Now, it, it 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 raises quite a few rungs in Batman Returns. 
yes. because the fighting between Batman and Catwoman is pretty incredible and like acrobatic. Uh-huh. But this well, he can move of, in the suit in the second. He can one. move in the suit. I know he's always <laughs> he's, he has to move his whole body. It's he's, yeah, yeah, yeah dude. Uh, but it reminds me a little bit of like of of Star Wars in that in the movies, the original trilogy, mm-hmm. the lightsaber battles are so slow. Yeah. And you're not really even <laughs> yeah. doing anything. There's no flips. There's nothing. And then the movies that are supposed to take place 30 years in the past, you have you know you you have you have Yoda bouncing around like yeah. a. Ping like pong the matrix ball. yeah and uh, it's the same thing here this this hand-to-hand combat is so mm-hmm. simple it yeah. is it it's kicks and it's punches mm-hmm. um and it doesn't matter it yeah. so much of this is 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 hidden because of the low light so much of it is hidden because of the uh the black mask editing it the the editing it's yeah. i i the, i that stuff i know you do to hide your your um your flaws but mm-hmm. it just makes me feel so confident in the storytelling for sure. It didn't feel like everything had to be told. I mean, I would say that one of the things I think is great about this movie is that it's the opposite of something that's turned me off from a lot of contemporary films, which is like all of the fighting, all of the action in this movie needs to be there. And it's not, it doesn't take up any more screen time than it needs to to tell you the story of it. Whereas now it's like, I'll see a movie like Wonder Woman and I'll go to the bathroom 45 minutes before the end thinking like, there's got to be just five minutes left. And there isn't. No. There isn't. It's, it, it is a big problem in terms of tent poles now, which is the amount of money they spend on these set pieces, right? Where it's like they're, they're afraid to cut any of this stuff. So it just feels like you're, it's awful. you're bogged down, especially in the Marvel films that yeah. essentially turn into a video game for your last, you know, as you said, 40 minutes or so, where you're just like, yeah, you know, there's going to be a bunch of spaceships. It's all going to be CG. None of it, none of it is ultimately going to matter very much. Um, and to your point, all this intimate fighting, which there isn't a ton of, serves a purpose. It serves a character purpose or it serves a plot purpose. I mean, I think about the the first interaction between, uh, or I guess the only interaction between Jack Napier and uh, and Batman uh, before he goes over the thing into the bat of chemicals is just sort of, you know, it's 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 more of a detente. You know what I mean? It's more of these two guys that are kind of sizing each other up than it really is an actual physical fight. You also get the impression too that like Batman is trying to save him. He doesn't want to drop him into the chemicals. It's oh, just no. like, you know what I mean? It, it's so there, there's, there is something to that. All the access chemical stuff, Tim Burton talked about it being just a nightmare to shoot. It was an awful experience <laughs> shooting inside this factory with all these, it was just awful. But like, this is actually a good opportunity to talk about how muted this movie is, the color palette of this film. And how the punch of color really comes from the Joker and from his suits or from his, you know, various cars or henchmen or whatever. But like, it's a very muted film. I, I would argue that I think Batman Returns is a more colorful movie than this movie is. Now, admitted, Without question, right? It, it just well, it's feels a Christmas this movie's movie. just, and I'm I'm not joking. It's it's there. There's Christmas imagery all over. Yes, so yes, yes. you know, you have the 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 black, whites, and grays and yes. silvers of your your Gotham, but you yes. also have Pops of Tinsel green, pops and green red yeah. everywhere. Yeah. You're absolutely right. So it's it's just it's interesting how people talk about how Batman Returns is a darker film than this. And maybe psychologically it is in terms of the the emotional turmoil the characters are going through. Um, but I actually think that this film, because Nicholson is so such a live wire, I think this movie is a lot more quote unquote fun than 
do you, do you sort of see what I'm like? I feel like there's a, a pop cultureness to his Joker that was so iconic and so much fun. I mean, half of his lines don't even make any sense. <laughs> like, I mean, that line before he kills when he's dressed up as the mime, I have it here. Uh, Hello, Vinny. It's your uncle Bingo. Time to pay the check. What does that even mean? What, is, what does that have to do with Everybody anything? knows what that means. That's, <laughs> I'm, I know Karina knows what that means because it was used in the 20s all the time. Was it? So, <laughs> I mean, maybe. Yeah, the first, the, the first talk that was they were always about Vinny and Uncle Bingo. Sure. So, but it's it's just it's so crazy how even just like they never rub another man's rhubarb. But there's a part of me that just feels like Nicholson's just talking, like right. he's just saying words. And there's like that's gold. Just keep this doing is, what you're doing. This is why he thought he can do this in The Departed. This is why he, this is because he was so successful under you know face painted in a in a sure, purple suit. Sure, he thought sure. he could also say absurd shit in The Departed, crazy shit. It kind of so reminds I, yeah. me of like when it, when Hollywood actors would go do Italian films and they'd you know, record <laughs> all the audio later. And so they'd just be like, you know, just act with your face, say something. Sure. sure. Like House yeah. of Gucci? <laughs> <laughs> But it's just, it's, there is something about Nicholson. There's an unhinged playfulness to him that I think transcends the darkness of this movie. Whereas DeVito's gross, horny penguin (laughs) with oozing shit coming out of his mouth doesn't have the same, you know, fun, I guess, fun factor. I don't know. But it's, it's really, it's really. Phil, I might be jumping way ahead. But you and I, I think we've both stated on this podcast many mm-hmm. times that we prefer returns the second 100%. to the first. 100%. Um, I'm not going to say that I'm going to... Oh, no. I'm not changing it. I'm not... Okay. I do okay. think Batman Returns is the better film mm-hmm. because I think the Michelle Pfeiffer, Michael Keaton thing is chemistry sure. unlike I've ever seen in a movie. But um, it's closer than I thought. It, is no, that what sure. you feel? It's closer than I thought. I do really like this movie a lot. I love this movie. And, and you know, when we get to the end, we'll talk about, you know, where it falls for us in terms of, of ratings. But I, I do think that um, my affinity for Batman Returns is just, uh, it just feels like more of a Tim Burton movie. You know, he's clearly been just sort of let off the chain. He's like, I'm going to make a movie about <laughs> just a bunch of freaks and sadomasochism, I guess. And uh, and just a bunch of shit that it's it just, it, it's, it's, that's one of those movies that feels like a miracle that the studios even let him make it. Um, this movie to me uh, is just, you know, it's very clean. It's very streamlined. You know, you do get sort of a feeling of, of studio interference in some of the kind of um, some of the origin stuff, some of the kind of just easiness of it. it they don't want to challenge people that much with this film. I feel like Batman Returns is a more challenging film than this, but I'll also say too, like, this film I was watching uh, yesterday and, you know, you've got the Batmobile driving through these gothic woods and you've got this this iconic Danny Elfman score. And, and this movie is definitely weird. Like this movie's not, not weird, just to be clear. I just super think weird. it's, 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 it's super weird. Um, <laughs> Jerry Hall with the mask. I mean, it's, the, yeah, the it's all, the mask is weird. The, I mean, so, Karina, what are your? Do you have Kim Basinger thoughts, like where this is falling in her career, and and how you know all that? I don't really, I don't really have thoughts about where this falls in her career. I okay. like, I'm trying to think. Um, it's definitely post the natural. 
And obviously, it's about like five years before she wins the Oscar for LA Confidential. Yeah, so she wins in '97, um, so it's it's almost it ten years. Yeah. yeah. So I think she, that yeah. you know, I mean, obviously, I'm sure you guys know she was not the first choice for this no. part. Um, Sean Young was cast, and I've actually been for various reasons uh, reading a lot of Sean Young interviews this week. Interesting. And um, <laughs> she, she, you know, she was. Fired because she broke her arm riding, falling off of a horse in rehearsals. Lately, she has started to say that she thinks that that accident was set up to get her oh. fired from the movie. Um, because she John. says that she thinks that um, John Peter has had such a crush on Kim Basinger. Um, but okay. this, I mean, this is starting to sound okay. like, you know, like, you know, John Peter like hired his goons to push her off a horse. <laughs> It's hard to imagine. Um, I mean, not if you've seen like her pizza. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So I, the thing is, is that I think that Sean Young is a more interesting actress. And I do, I do mourn for the Batman that she would have been in. Um, I think that for me, it's not Kim Basinger's fault, but I think that Vicky Vale is the worst character in the movie. Um, the, it, the fault of it is in the writing. Um, you know, the one line of this movie that I remembered from 1989 that I still remembered as a 42-year-old woman, like, going to watch it again, um, mm-hmm. was he asks her how much she weighs. She says 108. They do the I whole thing so. on the wire. He puts her down and he says, you're a little bit more than 108. Like, that kind of misogyny was so normal yeah. in 1989 and it's it you know it seemed it imprinted on me as a nine-year-old sure. in this way where it's like oh. well i guess you're not supposed to weigh more than 108 pounds um, which is insane yeah, <laughs> yeah. i guess yeah. if a woman weighs more than 108 pounds that's a problem and they should lie about it um so that's yeah. I mean, that's the way that, and otherwise, you know, she has a couple of nice moments, but I don't buy the romance. It's too fast. And um, mostly I think she's just kind of used as a pawn between these two guys. Yeah. I mean, I can't, I can't disagree with any of that. I I mean, I think that Kim Basinger is, uh, she's very watchable in the sense that she has a charm and she has this sort of star quality to her that makes that, that, you know, makes her uh, a lot of fun to watch in the film. But to your point, I do feel like, first of all, I think someone counted and I think she screams like 50 something times in the movie. I mean, she, I would say like half of her dialogue is her screaming. Um, but she does have some really nice moments in particular, the moment when she, when uh, Bruce is trying to tell her that he's Batman, mm-hmm. and there's and and you do kind of like when the movie slows down for a second and lets her have a moment, she's actually quite good. The movie just doesn't have time or interest to do that very much. Um, you know that the Sean Young thing is interesting too, because as I'm sure you know in the articles you've read, the whole Catwoman fiasco that transpired that I, from Batman that I don't understand. Uh, <laughs> so there's particularly so, yeah, I, I, she she had their numbers, but um, <laughs> but I I I I I, I'm, I think more uh, into Kim Basinger's performance than perhaps you guys are, uh, and I, I think I watched this a little. Sorry, I actually remember kind of distinctly as a seven year old being disappointed in Vicky Vale's character. Um, <laughs> sure. And I, it's a weird thing to say, but I, I distinctly remember 
there was a, a Prince song about her. Oh yeah, and, waiting. Uh, yes, a great song. Yes, <laughs> and uh, Prince having the song about her somehow implanted it, it, this idea in my seven-year-old mind that this was a big, important character, right? Okay. That, like, this was going to be a consequential character. Uh-huh. And uh, I remember thinking, when is it going to happen? Right? <laughs> like, like, what, like, like I, I even remember saying, and this is such a weird thing, but I remember saying to my parents who took me to the movie, like, she's going to get cool. Like, <laughs> it's... <laughs> <laughs> I like how could she, she not? Prince wouldn't bother yeah. writing a song about someone who wasn't cool, and she yeah. never got cool. So well, the I've, song, the song is from the perspective of Bruce yeah. Wayne, being mm-hmm. like, like I can't share. Why can't I share myself with this woman? Like, like, and is it even worth it to bring children into this world? <laughs> it's a crazy so, song. <laughs> to be fair, yeah. the song's really more about Bruce. I, I don't think I got that at the time, but uh, <laughs> I don't think I knew what Darling Nikki was bad either. So, you know, like you never know with Prince, but um, <laughs> what I was going to say was uh-huh. I watched this movie with this weird little like uh, protection, pr- pr- protectionist sure. urge mm-hmm. over this character, which is like, you're not as bad as they say you are. And <laughs> you, you, you should have been brought back and all these things. So I do think she did a good job, particularly it's interesting. You talk about the 50 screams because I think her reactions are. Incredible. They're genuine. Yeah. They I, I don't think they're really, bad. They're really good. And they really like Vicki Vale is the one who tells you the story on her face, tells you how to feel in the mm-hmm. moment and how terrified you'd be of, of, mm-hmm. uh, the Joker, and frankly, sure. how comforted you should be by this man in a bat suit. Right. And then the thing I'll always remember, the, I remember the first time I saw it was the way she kissed his suit. There was something about... The Joker suit. He, yes, when she yeah. starts and kissing like him back the, to kind yeah. of... Yes, to lure him into a sense of, I suppose, uh-huh. you know, vulnerability. But then there's also an illusion of oral sex. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which is well, you know. kind of insane. That this movie gets away with. Kind of insane. Kind of insane. <laughs> like, uh, every I time I see it, I'm just like, wow, job. they go there. I don't think she did a terrible job. And I also think, I, I, and part of what I, the reason I think she did kind of a good job was because, you know, the last shot of the movie is Batman on the roof looking at the bat signal, but that's, you know, that's just a poster. The, the last moment of this movie is Vicky being in the back of Alfred's mm-hmm. car and being part of the team now. And that feels She's going to get cool now. <laughs> one would one would hope. <laughs> I, you know, it's it is. I actually, it's funny because I do think that Vicky Vale as a character, it's sort of interesting that we are where we are now, where every single character is mined for a television show or a spinoff or a whatever, and Vicky hasn't got that treatment yet. I know, admittedly, she's popped up in a couple CW shows or or your WB shows, but like Vicky Vale for good or bad, feels like this is the quintessential version of her. And I'm not sure that that does the character as much service or justice as, as she perhaps deserves. Um, but it's, it, it is just interesting, too, that, like, you know, Kim Basinger wins in 97, but kind of is in the wilderness after this for, for, for quite some time. Um, so it's interesting that because she turns down Batman Returns, that she was Vicky was going to be in a version of it, and she turns it down, um, which you know more power to her. But she doesn't use this film to kind of catapult a career in the way that perhaps would have been nice, I guess. Well, we should look at the dates. I think maybe she got pregnant. I think maybe she oh, took right, a right, couple right, years right. off to have a kid. 
and be married to Alec Baldwin. With everyone's favorite yeah. actor. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it, it is... It's it is interesting. I want to talk about the Prince thing for a second because I do. So the Prince thing was apparently a John Peters idea that Tim Burton was not particularly on board for, which is why the 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 Prince. There's two big Prince song moments. There's the museum, and then there's the parade. Other than that, there's some kind of played very low in the background. <laughs> Where you can't even really tell that they're that they're there. Um, I'm kind of surprised Tim Burton didn't wrap his arms around the Prince thing a little bit more because they do feel like two peas in a pod. I mean, Not I can, to me, uh, to me, I think it's like he already had this relationship with Danny Elfman, right? right. Um, you know, he probably was hearing Elfman's score mm-hmm. throughout the whole thing, ideally. And when you know, it's a fantastic score, like yeah, and it's well used, you know. And I actually think that there's exactly enough Prince music in the movie. Because then it's fun that you get to like listen to the whole Prince album and get more of it. And watch the music videos, which are amazing. It's to me supremely weird (laughs) that, that Tim Burton, Prince and Batman (laughs) teamed up ever. And it it worked a little bit. Like, it's just, it's like every once in a while you see a movie where you have multiple songs by someone. And whenever you have multiple songs by anybody in a movie, Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's a little weird. You know, like not like, you know, sometimes it's Amy Mann and Magnolia and it's the best thing. Sometimes it's Cat Stevens and Harold and Maude. Yes. And sometimes, exactly. Sometimes it works so well and it's so wonderful. But the the instinct to, to, to do that thing uh, it's just, it's a weird thing to me. And particularly in this one, because like, I don't know, you, you went, obviously Prince is a wild, wild uh, performer and artist. Sure. And I love him very much, but he's very specific. And he was also very famous. And to like tack on someone that specific and that famous mm-hmm. to a film like this was not even bold. I, I maintain it's crazy. And well, I, can't crazier, it didn't, was, you know, I can't believe it didn't derail the film. Well, the original plan, which I don't know if you know, was actually, it was going to be Michael yeah, Jackson. Prince and Michael and Jackson, Prince. I know. So Prince yeah. was going to be the Joker side of the coin yeah. and Michael Jackson was going to be the Batman side. And I mean, that just seems absolutely insane. I mean, for a whole bunch of reasons. You but it, it would overshadow just, the film. It's, it's, it's all of so it. It's crazy. bonkers. And then for the next one, there's one song and it's by Susie and the Banshees, which actually probably makes more sense for Tim Burton in terms of like the, you know, the, the goth uh, pop star that, that, uh, that she was. So it, it, I don't disagree with you, Kenny. There's a part of me that's like, if you lifted the Prince songs out of this, I don't think the film's any worse for it, but the Prince songs are there. They do pop when they happen. Yeah. I'm not them knocking them. I love yeah. it. I, I love yeah. it. And I love that it happened because then you look at the Schumacher films where he just pulled the, you know, the biggest artist in at the given time and said, write something kind of like Batman. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you get Stone Cold classics like sure. Kiss from a Rose, which is about heroin. Um, but, it, it, it all, <laughs> it's, a, it's a very romantic song. It, it, it all means nothing, right? Like, it, it all, or it all yeah. means nothing at that point because it sure. really, they really have, you know, kind of did that, they've kind of done that head first dive into sure. marketing first and filmmaking second. <laughs> But again, I had that soundtrack though. That Batman Forever soundtrack. It's got yeah, some bangers on there. Me, that U2 song. Kill yeah. Me. Yeah. Flaming Lips. Yeah, the, one of the that. only U2 songs that holds up for me. <laughs> wow. I know every word to Kiss like from a Rose. I am not knocking the song. <laughs> no, that's I didn't about think you heroin. were. Again. You were. <laughs> so I, I want to talk for a second about um, the, the, the climax of the film. 
uh, which revolves around the Joker murdering everyone in Gotham City because they're yeah. <laughs> because they want money, uh, which is fair. Uh, but it's well, that's it not is, why he murders them. That's why he's able to murder them. Correct. Sorry, my apologies. Yes. <laughs> Their greed allows him to murder them. Um, there is an image that that really kind of breezes by, but really hit me hard this time around, which is a man using money to try as a mask to try to stop <laughs> the gas great. from getting. And I'm just like, damn, like, this, is, this is pretty fucking crazy. But yeah, I, I mean, how about it's, Alexander Knotts had just having an N95 in the back of his car? <laughs> well, there's that, there is that too. And a baseball bat. Um, that was also a moment where she hits him with the car and knocks him out and she just takes off. We're just like, we need knocks out of the equation. So how do we get rid of him? But all of that, um, that whole sequence, all the Batwing stuff looks absolutely gorgeous in terms of just the, the use of the miniatures and the practicals. Um, all of that sort of uh, gothic flying around through the various architecture of, of Gotham City. Um, but then also just, I mean, a, a, an image or a moment that feels like it encapsulates the, the playfulness of the movie is when the Joker pulls a giant gun out of his pants and just... <laughs> That's a good just, gun. It's a good gag. That, and just that blows gun, the bag out of the sky. The, the, I, this is so funny because Batman is in is in some version of a bat fighter jet <laughs> and shit firing, firing, firing... Missiles and... Yeah. Missiles and he's, he's firing, you know... Yeah, yeah missiles yeah. down at Joker who stands yeah. in the middle of the street, come and get me. He yeah. misses him. The only time he misses anybody in all the films. Yes. And Joker is able to take down the Batwing with one shot from his extra... <laughs> Oh, it's fantastic. <laughs> and the thing is, too, oh, is that apparently also that one of the best things happened like right around that that moment, too, which is, you know, he just kills Bob just out of nowhere. Bob's he just like gun. <laughs> he just kills. Him. And then he says, I'm gonna need a moment alone, boys. Yeah, it's it's and Bob is with is, him when he kills the parents. Bob is his man from way back, yeah. and he just had a bad moment. It's great. It's great. <laughs> I do think that the gun is great because it's it's it almost feels like Doctor Strange lovey and how like sort of yeah. satirical and and funny it is. But what's also great is that originally it was supposed to be a tank that he was going to drive out from underneath the parade float. Yeah. And I'm just like, I mean, sure, but this is so much better. It's so, so much silly. like it's just silly and great. So so then we get to the cathedral. Uh, or this is sort of the, the, the end of the film. And apparently, originally, Vicky Vale was never supposed to go up into the cathedral. It was uh, it was Kim Basinger's idea. She's like, I think I should be involved in this, which I mean, she wasn't wrong. But <laughs> please give me something to do. <laughs> can I please not drop off out of this movie for the last? So she, so they obviously write her into it. But then apparently they had no idea what they were going to do at the top of the cathedral when they shot the bottom of the cathedral. So Tim Burton just said to Jack, like Jack Nicholson turned to him and said, what am I doing when I get to the top? And he's like, we'll figure it out when we get there. I mean, this is just, I don't know, man. How do you make movies like this? How do you just like, it's, it's, it's crazy that it worked. Um, it's, it is a little underwhelming. (laughs) <laughs> that that this this fight kind of happens and Batman uh-huh. wins uh, he's and then <laughs> Joker's able to pull them both yep. somehow uh-huh. off mm-hmm. the side not even because he's stronger because he's wearing you know 
three inches of body armor, but um, true, he, true. he's able to pull him off the side mm-hmm. and they're just kind of hanging there. But he saves, I, like, uh, he saves it one with his dancing and two with him yeah. looking up at the gargoyle and saying, what are you laughing at? What are you laughing at? <laughs> what a line. What a guy. Also, you wouldn't hit a guy with glasses, would you? <laughs> always remember that. It's yeah. it's just crazy. It's it's really crazy stuff. I and again, I mean, not to keep belaboring <clears> this, but it it really like the Joker is saving all of this. Nicholson is saving all of this, right? Because as you said, Kenny, it's a bunch of sort of you know relatively unenthusiastic action because Tim Burton's not a particularly good action director. Uh, Michael Keaton can't move in the suit. Uh, it's it's darkly lit, and it's him. He fights a couple guys. He kicks a couple guys, and and then and then he punches the Joker. And uh, you know, it's but the Joker's lines of like, "You made me, I made you." I mean, how childish can you get? <laughs> I mean, that type of stuff saves all of it. Um, on paper, the climax of this film is somewhat. Uh, <laughs> You know, a little snoozy. It's not doesn't have a ton going on. Well, they but just kind of get to the point where it's like, okay, enough. We got to get rid of the Joker yeah. and wrap it up. You know, yeah. it's not like it's it's like there's nothing sort of satisfying left to do. Mm-hmm. For sure, the, the way he goes down is great. Nicholson's it's great. face is great. He's holding on to that that rope ladder. Mm-hmm. It's great. Like. It's just they kill him too. Can we just talk about that for a second. Like they kill so the Joker. Satisfying. Like, it is the whole thing, the whole end, everything about it is just so satisfying. And then the ultimate score into the, you know, it's they just the never only- kill villains anymore. First of all, most of the time they keep them alive for for you know to come back in future films. You also um, don't want your your hero unless he's Deadpool. Deadpool to actually kill people, but Batman was kind of okay with it. Batman you know? was more than okay. I mean, that's like the whole reason why he exists, right? Mm-hmm. That's why Batman exists is to kill the guy who He'll killed kill parents. Yeah. And so it's like the what the stranger question is is like why is he still Batman? Mm-hmm. Yes, <laughs> very good question, <laughs> Karina. Because the that's film it. is over. <laughs> that's why they. That's why they never kill him anymore. That's why they let him all live. <laughs> well, it's it, it's it's kind of great because at the very beginning, when he dangles that guy off the off the top of the roof, and the guy's like, "Don't kill me, man! Don't kill me, man!" And Batman then says to the Joker, "I'm gonna kill you." So let's talk. Let's talk about what this has wrought. Oh yeah, please. Yeah, because it's interesting to me that you started this screener by saying, "I'm, I'm going to paraphrase you, but essentially, you don't watch superhero films anymore." Uh, since Iron Man three, but can you elaborate on what you think has kind of happened with Hollywood and with your, you know, your particular taste and um, where those two things aren't connecting right now for you? Well, I was, I mean, I was never that interested because I was not a mm-hmm. comic book reader. None of these characters meant anything to me, but I would see some of them out of, out of sort of obligation. Um, you know, I, I genuinely really liked the first Iron Man because I felt like Downey was really doing something there. Um, it, you know, it's, it was, it felt like it was sort of the, the actor taking over the film, like with his sheer force of charisma. Um, and then I just kind of got progressively less interested from movie to movie. Um, I don't care about any of the other characters or any of those performances. And it just started feeling, you know, more rote and more boring to me. Um, and so, yeah, I'm just out. But um, I guess you could say that, like, since 2013, <laughs> um, you know, it's 
me being out has meant that I'm further and further out of sort of the conversation about the highest grossing movies of the year. Um, you know, that's the last Marvel movie I've seen. I did go see Wonder Woman because people are like, no, this one's different, but it's not different, except it's worse in a lot of ways. Um, and I just feel like I, I'm not going to get fooled again. Like every now and then somebody will be like, no, this one's different, but they're not. Are there blockbuster movies that you do like? That sure. You- I mean, when when there are blockbusters that are not just these movies, yeah. I guess I'm asking a different question. Blockbusters, you know, is 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 what a film becomes when it makes a lot of money. But mm-hmm. movies that are kind of designed to be blockbusters. Yeah, I mean, I wish I could give you some recent examples, but it's again, it's like I don't even know what movies are hits anymore. Like, yeah, what would you sure. say those movies are of the past couple of years? Well, I guess so. This we're going to do uh, Star Trek soon. Mm-hmm. The 2009 Star Trek, the J.J. Abrams one. Yeah, I saw the um, first one. I fell asleep in the theater during the second one, and now I'm out. Sure. Did you like the first one out of curiosity? I, I mean, liked just... Chris Pine in it. Like, I thought, okay. this guy's a movie star. Right. But otherwise, I could sort of take it or leave it. So I guess but the I guess... question that, that Kenny's circling here, um, and I think it's, it is, you know, these franchises are built in such a way that I wonder whether or not the sort of universality, the attempt of making sure that it's applicable to as many people as possible is making them kind of vanilla, right? Like, I think that we're losing the well, special. certainly. I mean, and again, like, I haven't seen the Joaquin Phoenix Joker. It seems like, you know, maybe that one really was different. Um, You've seen Taxi Driver, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, and King of Comedy. Um, yeah, I think you're good. I always thought it was more yeah. King of Comedy. Yeah. <laughs> I... I, I, I Sorry, Greeny, go ahead. Oh, it just, you know, I think it's definitely, they do all feel safe and kind of the same movie. And again, it's just like, it, it doesn't feel like they're, people are making these movies because they have a story they want to tell or like something they want to say about these characters or that they're using these characters and these stories as a way of saying something about like, you know, the world we live in or who, what human beings are like. They're just doing it to make money. And you know, maybe some, there are some exceptions to that, um, but that feels like that's the trend. So this is kind of what I think I'm, I'm, I'm getting at. I think I've put my finger on it finally. Um, you are clearly one of like our preeminent film historians. And uh, I've listened to so much of what you've done and uh, you are not a snob. So it's it's not that to me, and I'm trying to, you know, I don't mean to put words in your mouth or make assumptions, so please, you know, correct me where I'm wrong. Uh, it's not that you would be out no matter what. It's I like the Mission Hol- Impossible movies. Right. That's what I'm getting at. Like, it's that Hollywood has lost you to some extent. And the problem I see is... What happens to film as a academic endeavor when we are no longer making the kind of films that interest our the, the people who take films seriously? And obviously these films exist like in places, but they used to all exist um all over the place like as i said that film i watched they i watched they shoot horses don't they this morning which was made by abc films and starring jane fonda and uh you know 
made $16 million 50 years ago, uh, which was only the 16th biggest grossing movie of the year, a year when Midnight Cowboy won Best Picture. Those were the kind of movies that used to get made and and make money and yes. make and make money and, you know, birth careers and all those things as a as an academic and a film historian. What do we do? Like, like what's happening and, and what do you us, see? And it's not even like, like, no, just, I'm, just, I, I, I'm just I'm not trying to just, your point. just analyze the moment. Yeah. Like, what's happening? Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I used to go see everything. So, I mean, I, I, I still would, um, you know, global pandemic aside. That's fine. <laughs> um, and that's actually the thing that makes it so hard to have a crystal ball in this moment or to diagnose a problem and fix it is like, I don't know if movie going is ever going to come back in the same way. And then I don't know how you respond to how the audience changes. Um, you know, but it's, it really wasn't that long ago that you had, was it 2008 or 2009 when like the, Best Picture nominees were like There Will Be Blood, No Country for Old Men, Juno, and then I think two other decent movies. Um, And so now it it just feels like we've gotten so far away from from that being, those kinds of movies even being made to that extent. Um, And whereas, you know, these kinds of movies existed in 2009. You know, 2009 was also the year of Iron Man, right? I mean, and it's not like, like... Marvel really started anything because as we've said, like Batman kind of started the trend that like snowballed into Marvel. And in between that, you had the X-Men movies, which is like whatever Batman started. I mean, X-Men like took the baton and ran right after. Yeah. Um, So, you know, I do think these things can coexist. um, But what worries me is that the pandemic has accelerated um, the situation where the, you know, it certainly accelerated streaming and this idea that like, you know, we'll we'll just go to where the audience is. And that creates a different kind of content being made. And it creates, um, it takes away the impetus to make things specifically designed to be seen big with a lot of people. um, And it changes the economics of everything. What, What I think has happened because of all what you said, that... I don't know. I'd like to look at it as neutral because it doesn't really matter, but it kind of sucks. Is uh, critics aren't really critics anymore. They're advocates. Because if things aren't coming out on a mass scale and available kind of, and I know know Netflix democratizes it, but they're they're hidden, right? Nobody even knows these things, half these things exist. So until awards season. Until award season, right? Because people, because critics have been advocating all all, all and then year. Then also, not- Netflix actually spends money marketing their movies in December. Would they don't market their movies before that? And so, tons of stuff they release, tons of stuff, tons of stuff. You don't know about any of it until they're like, well, you know, maybe we can win an Oscar for Power of the Dog. And and these things in general don't even get reviewed because. Uh, you know, some of them do. Some movies get reviewed, but but for the most part, they don't even get reviewed because they do kind of exist in this, you know, morass of of stuff. And that's uh, it just it just it, it. I don't know. I oh, I, I like the idea of film. I like the idea of cinema as a mass medium. I think that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. And uh, the you know. The, stratif- the, the, the stratification of it 
um, has just kind of changed. It's just changed the way we talk about films um, in a way that leads to less analyzing trends and less under less less of an understanding of filmmaking and techniques and the way things talk to each other and the way things speak to the moment and all those things. And it's more, you know, this movie, worst person in the world is amazing. Watch it when you can, you know, which is great. And I'm not knocking worst person in the world, but you know, that's kind of that, that's unfortunate that, that it's just, I have to pick my lanes and my, you know, my one or two movies that I think are important for you to see now. You I know, mean, can, I don't know. I, yeah. I mean, there was this moment over the summer, you know, where everybody thought COVID was over because we were vaccinated. <laughs> it was like two weeks. And <laughs> um, and I, it was starting to feel like people that I knew, at least, were excited about going out again and going to the movies and starting to have like, there started to be this hunger of like having movies to talk about. And they kind of, they're kind of weren't enough yet, you know? And then we're back in our houses for the most part now. Um but it's, I do about think it's Spider-Man. really important to remember, like, r- a month before the pandemic, at the the Oscars that took place in February 2020, the movies were Parasite, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, little Women. Little Women. Uh, marriage Story. You know, like, these are good movies. They're, mm-hmm. you know, uh, they're, and they're about something. And Joker mm-hmm. was there, too. You know, these things can coexist. And they didn't, it wasn't that long ago that they did coexist. I mean, I'm, you know, Kenny and I have had this conversation uh, a lot over the last, you know, year and a half to two years in terms of just trying to sort of, you know, uh, guess, I guess, as to how this is all going to play out. I I mean, I I think I'm a little more optimistic than Kenny is about the way that this is all going to play out. No judgment. Very pessimistic. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But I think that... I don't think that the studios are going to give up necessarily on trying to make the films that that you just you know listed. Um, I think that you know uh, it's going to be a little bumpy for a bit, and I think it's going to take time and patience, and hopefully we'll we'll find a way to get those people back into theaters. Um, you know, this was a weird year. Um, you know, it's disappointing when West Side Story doesn't make any money. Um, it's disappointing when some of these films that that are you know, that you want to see with a big, excited crowd on a big screen um, aren't getting the people out to them. But to, I'm a to, big to, Last to, Duel fan. So, I mean, Last Duel, I saw that. Last, last Duel is a movie that would have made $200 million in 2008, you know? Yes, yeah. correct. Um, yeah, so it's, but, but you know, to, to bring us full loop and to sort of wrap this up on the Batman side of things, I, I think it's worth saying that, like, a lot of people saw that film in 89 as the beginning of the end. Um, a lot of people that were like, now all people are going to care about is, you know, our, our big extravagant set pieces and yeah. IP and comic books and all these things. And it, it, <laughs> I don't know that it was the beginning of the end, but it was the beginning of something different. And it was the beginning of, of just a commodification and a, and a level of success that you can't expect studios to turn a blind eye you to. You know, it, it happens yeah. over and over where some studio some director makes a paradigm shifting movie sure and then you have years and years and years of pale imitators that uh mm-hmm. that suck it happened with jaws and star wars and et indiana jones and and this pulp film pulp fiction 100 percent. sure you know up through the matrix and uh yep you know and in the 2000s we got all the you know the 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 y the ya ripoffs that no one bothered watching that were 200 million dollar movies so it's it's a it's a town of heat seeking missiles. It always yeah. will be. It's always going to look for the Batman's thing that pops. Fault, but and... yeah, it, it did kind of like signal the beginning of, <laughs> of this. 
not the end of this, of this thing that, that, that we've now been in for about 30 years. Um, I mean, we're, main, we are basically the main difference, a, and we're not talking about it, but the main difference between this and all the ones that I'd mentioned that came chronologically before it mm-hmm. are the tie-ins, so the merchandise and the McDonald's sure, and, sure. you know, the, the American Express thing was a joke, but it was also product placement. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that kind of stuff. I mean, we're basically at a place now where, I mean, I think it was about a year or two ago, there was rumors that Tim Burton was going to do another Batman movie with uh, Michael Keaton and, you know, that they were going to try to... We were going to write it, right? <laughs> yeah, Kenny and I were going to write it. But <laughs> but I think that it... I would say that more than anything, uh, it really just comes back to originality. I think that people are still... They still love a good story, something original, and that stuff is always going to be popular in some form or another. Um, but yeah, I mean, IP is IP and that's just what it is. But all that being said, Karina, um, I'm curious as to how you would rate this film, what you thought of it as a nine-year-old, uh, and what you thought of it today. So it's really hard for me to remember my sort of critical opinion about it when I was nine. I mean, the movie that I remember better from that summer is Ghostbusters 2. Sure. Um, and Very that fun. was definitely a movie that yeah. I've I've read more times. Um, <laughs> and I mean, talk about product placement like that. I I used to go to Sizzler sometimes after camp in the afternoons, huh? and for two months before Ghostbusters Two came out at my local Sizzler, there was a sign on the door that said "Ads seen in the soon to be released major movie <laughs> Ghostbusters Two. And That's there is great. no Sizzler in Ghostbusters Two. There is just a joke about. <laughs> <Sizzler>. <laughs> Yeah, I was gonna you're say. Gonna I thought you were gonna. Reason, I thought you were like, gonna say yeah, you were drinking the Ecto Blaster oh, the ex- or whatever. No, I just think that they sent oh, so like a poster to every Sizzler that said that's "soon great. to be seen in the major motion picture oh, Ghostbusters awesome. 2. Anyway, um, I yeah. would have given Ghostbusters two a one hundred in nineteen eighty nine. But uh, Batman, I I just honestly can't remember that much of what I thought of it. I mean, I think I was probably a little bit bored. And a little bit thrilled. Um, so I'm going to say in 1989, I probably would have given it like a 65. Okay. Um, but I think in 2022, let's say I would give it like a 78. Okay. All right. I mean, it's it's good. And it's I think it's really fascinating that it's been almost 30 years since the gap between. and And at the same time the movie hasn't changed that much for you to some degree or another. And I don't mean that in a judgmental way. I just think that I, I, I'm just completely guessing on the 65. So like it's a meaningless number, you know, but I mean, for me, it's 78, which is pretty, pretty high for me, I would say. Um, And it just kind of gets docked because I think like, um, you know, I didn't know that they hadn't figured out what they were going to do at the top of the cathedral until you said it. But now that explains something to me about how the movie. Phil, you ruined it. You know, kind of works out there. And then I also just think, like, I, I, um, this time, you know, was pretty bothered by sort of the weakness of the Vicki Vale character. So, and I just, I think it's, I think it's important that movies, you don't have to have every, like, every movie doesn't have to have, like, two women having a conversation with each other. (laughs) Like, I know that's, like, the minimal standard that we've set. You don't have to have that, but you do have to have a reason for a woman to be in a movie besides for her to have sex with a guy. Yeah, it feels like a pretty low bar that we right. Like, I feel like if we can if we could get over the the that bar of like she is only there to have sex with your male protagonist. Uh, yeah, I, I I don't I don't to, disagree like, with you. Be at risk of being raped by your villain. <laughs> yeah, also so, true. 
Also true. Uh, yeah. uh, which, which, which was which was stark in this film. Yes. Every time he kind of pulled her yes. away, surrounded by you yes. know gun toting bad guys. Mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I mean, I thought about my my kid, and I'm like, what does he think that Joker wants with her? Um, because well, like it's, it's interesting you bring that up because in the scene when they're in her apartment. You know, that's the what I'm dope, thinking of. Right? Yeah. And he pulls her, and this is the first time I noticed that Kim Basinger literally almost falls down. Like he's yanking her so hard that you get the impression that she's actually, you know, unbalanced. But anyway, it's crazy. Um, it's crazy. Yeah. It's not uh, well, all right. I, I'd, all right say in, uh, I'd say in 89, seeing this film, it was probably like a 98. Um, <laughs> and, and the reason I, the reason I, I want to put it so high. Is mm-hmm. because I think this is the first film I saw in theaters that I loved. And okay. that felt like I was the one who was making the decision to love it. It wasn't um, my parents saying you should love this movie yeah. or my parents putting it on for me or my parents picking the movie we went to. I insisted we see this movie. I begged that we would see this movie. And uh, and we did. I won. Mm-hmm. And I loved it. <laughs> I and won. then... Uh, uh, before this podcast, I had given it a 91 uh-huh. um, because I still love it and I think it's uh, awesome. But I think it's, um, and it's interesting because I kind of had the same reaction you had, Karina. Uh, you do see seams in this movie. Uh, it does feel a little patchworky to me. And I think that was what I was kind of feeling and you said it. Um, I'm going to go down just a little bit to an 89 for 89, though I still do love this <laughs> film, but uh, uh, I don't, uh, I can't ignore what Karina just said. <laughs> so it's like, I mean, like, I don't know. Like, it's all true. It's all true. Sure. And, and, it, and, it, and it is, and it is a, a, a fault of the film. Uh, and that doesn't make it, you know, any less important or uh, any mm-hmm. less worthy of uh, one's enjoyment. Like, I'm not but, about to, like, write an essay about, you know, what Batman gets wrong about Vicky Vale. Yeah. Um, it it could have been better. You could, though. <laughs> I mean, people would read it. I mean, I'll just say this. I So when I saw this in 89, um, I I'm, I was a big scaredy cat. Uh, I just, I really didn't particularly like scary movies. And, and You've worked on that, though. You've I have. Him. Kenny's Kenny's you, made me a lot. Have you lot. seen the new yeah. Scream, by the way, Phil? Not yet, but you I'm going to, to see it. Yeah, Karina, are you a Scream fan? I I was into it in the '90s. Yeah, I think okay. I probably I don't think I've seen four, and I haven't seen this new one. Oh, four is actually great. a lot of fun. You might yeah, like four. Four is great. But but all that being said, I was a big scaredy cat. So I I vividly remember being nine years old and the scene when he electrocutes the guy, mm-hmm. and like he oh that awesome. actually. It's awesome now. I was nine. I was like, this is not awesome. This is scary. I don't like this. But ultimately, obviously, still really love the film. Um, I probably would have given it a 90 back in 89. Um, Before this podcast, similar to Kenny, I went up a little bit. Um, Well, actually, sorry. It doesn't matter. Anyway, I was at like a 92. I'm at an 89 now as well because I feel as though... um, Everything you said is right, Karina. I can't. I, I. It's. It's hard for me to really ride for a lot of the stuff that's going on in this film. It was a different time, obviously, but still, the Vicky Vale character bumps me. Um, it just feels like they left money on the table and could have just done some really interesting stuff with her. Um, and cool. but but it. Listen, it's still like I don't know. Watching it the other day, I think we all had the same feeling of just being like, 
this movie's crazy that it exists and it's cool and weird. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I love that, that, you know, I, I guess ultimately I wish the right lessons were taken away from this film. And I feel like the wrong lessons were taken away because of how unbelievably successful it was monetarily rather than creatively. And I wish that, you know, so that, that's my big takeaway is that I wish that, you know, we aren't where we are now because it made so much money. It would just be nice if, uh, they made cool, weird movies like this more. Anyway, Karina, thank you so, so much for coming on and talking about Batman with us. We really thank you. I, I didn't know this was the last 89 episode you guys are doing, but I'm happy. So happy I got in there. <laughs> you, right, right at the wire. And I mean, it goes without saying that uh, we'd love to have you back for, you know, future episodes. And, and uh, we've got lots of exciting movies and things to talk about. And you, as Kenny said, the preeminent. Film historian yeah. showing us how it's showing us how it's done showing us how it's done from your your padded cell. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's how it is. But anyway, yes. thank you so much, Karina. We really do. It's awesome it. to have you on. Thank you for thank for you. I'm on. really and happy thank you and thank you for all of your your podcasts because they've got me through runs. They're the best. Thank you. I think that's right, the we'll highest you compliment you can give someone. I listen to you while I while I run, and it makes the run better. <laughs> I know. I agree. I've definitely listened to your guys' show on a hike. Oh. So oh. thank you. So much yeah. for, for listening, honestly. That that means the world to us. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.